Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. There are artists who get big by following trends. There are artists who get big by writing the perfect three-minute pop masterpiece. And then there's Rush. is Rush with one of their best-known songs. The song is called Tom Sawyer. You might have heard that one on rock radio. You might have changed direction, ice skating to it. But if you're just a casual listener, you should know that for a Canadian band, Rush are incredibly important. I mean, in the early 80s, they did this unprecedented run of like four nights at Wembley Arena in London in the UK. But yeah, platinum album sales, inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they were inducted by Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters and Nirvana. And as I was kind of saying off the top, they didn't do it in an very conventional way. I mean, first off, they were Canadian when no bands were Canadian. Also, their songs weren't your typical radio songs. They had strange time signatures, drum solos. They were like 13 minutes long, a lot of them. Lyrics about the importance of human autonomy. And of course, the unmistakable voice of Getty Lee. Getty Lee and Rush and a song called Limelight. Getty Lee has just written down his story in a new book called My and Life. By the way, in it, he talks about the, uh, we'll call it, polarizing response to his voice on Rush Records. I've always liked Getty's voice. In it, Getty opens up for the first time about his journey from being a shy kid in the suburbs of Toronto to the front man from one of the most influential and beloved rock bands of all time. I was so happy when Getty Lee dropped by the Q studio to talk about his... Uh, his effing life. How did the early tragedy experienced by Getty and his family help him seek out a life in rock music? How do you tell your Holocaust survivor mother that you're going to quit school to play music? And what exactly happened when Neil Peart auditioned to be the drummer of Rush? Here's my conversation with Getty Lee. What was young Getty like? Well, that's a really interesting question, and, and because there was a perception of what young Getty was like to me, and then after I wrote this book, I had a very different perception of what young Getty was like. What do you mean? Because I always consider myself a shy, a nerdy uh, kid, you know, kind of uh, uh, the quietest kid in, in the room. But when I look at some of the things I did throughout my early life— 
I couldn't have been that shy. I couldn't have been that reserved because, uh, you know, I ran off to join the circus. You know, I, I joined this crazy rock band. And at one point, I got kicked out of that rock band. And then I started my own rock band, like, the next day. Yeah. This is, these are not the actions of a quiet, nerdy kid. You also grew your hair so long that <laughs> your mom got someone to paint your bar mitzvah photo <laughs> yes. because she was so ashamed of you having long hair in it. That's right. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's not a nerdy, quiet kid. No, it's not. But I always thought of myself as such. And I was shy, that's for sure. And part of the... I think it's very common amongst entertainers. A lot of entertainers are shy. And yeah. one of the things that draws them to perform or, or create is to get over that shyness. So I think that was the case with me. But uh, yeah, so it was very um, interesting to learn about myself through the eyes of this typing I was doing. We don't just learn about you, though. I mean, really early on in the book, I want to say, I think it's chapter three, you go into sort of after you establish your family and sort of like where you come from in Toronto, you go into great detail around your mother and your father's experience in the Holocaust. At a, at a, at a detail I was, I was not expecting, I was so um, affected by it, the, the story of your mo mother and your father marrying in a camp. Um, I had never heard a story like that before, seeing the pictures of it. Um, what made you... Well, first off, may I, may I ask, well, like, what did you want us to get a sense of in writing that chapter? Okay, uh, that's a multi-layered answer. No surprise. Um, <laughs> so when I agreed to do a memoir, uh, when I finally admitted to myself and to my book agent that I would do a memoir, I said, uh, it has to include a chapter about my mom's life during the war, about my family, like where they came from, what they went through, because... You can't even hope to understand me if you don't know that. Because I think the environment that I was raised in, the home that I was raised in, the kind of stories that I was spoon-fed by my mom growing up were, were, were Holocaust stories. They were uh, incredibly affecting, and they shaped, in one way or another, consciously or subconsciously, they shaped the person I have become. You know, it's very interesting... Uh, when you hear these stories over and over again from a person who's aging, they change a little bit. Right. The facts start to get a bit fluid, mm -hmm. shall we say. So I was determined to cross-reference every story I'd heard with other members of my family. And incredibly, uh, I found resources that uh, were synchronous with what I was trying to do. I found just an incredible amount of information that helped me finally tell my mom's story for the sake of my family, if no one else, about what she really went through and what camps she was in and what she did to survive and how she met my dad and fell in love. And uh, yeah. it's a, you know, it's an <laughs> incredible tale. What do you mean when you say in order to understand me, you have to understand what my, my mom went through? Well, my personality, my my love of my culture, you know, my my, you know, I quote my mom. I quote, I I I, I make great uh, currency out of my mom's accent. For example, I love to talk like her, <laughs> and to tell the jokes she tells. Mm. Um, so, um, her story is it set the tone for my life. It really, uh, um, I think my sister and my brother would agree um, that. 
We grew up in a household filled with evocative tales of danger and mystery and murder and all those things seep into your blood and, and they form your value system and the way you regard the rest of the world. And so I really credit uh, her ri- raising me. And then when my dad died, which was a, a you know a watershed moment in yeah. anyone's life when they lose a parent, but uh, it was a very significant, powerful effect on me. And I don't think I would have been the musician I am, the person I am, had I not suffered those stories or suffered the loss of my dad. I really, I really don't think I would have gone in this direction. Who knows where, where I would have ended up. I want to stay on that in just a second about the the growing up as the child of Holocaust survivors and how that might have impacted your life. But I want to go to what you just talked about just then, which is that you lost your dad when you were 12 years old. You know, I was really struck by that, that you were – um, you had a fever. Your dad seemed to have the same fever. Like you had a flu and your dad had the same flu. And then one night you wake up and you describe it so powerfully, the idea that you were just lying in bed and you heard your mother shrieking and um, – and then you realize, hey, well, the the my my, my dad has is gone. But you're also in this sort of fevered days. You don't really know what's going on. You're not able to do the things you're supposed to do. You said to me at the beginning, I said, you know, what was Young Getty like? And you said, I've learned new things about what Young Getty was like from the writing of this book. Do you feel that way about the death of your father? Did you do you, do you learn something new about the way your father died? The way you processed that death from writing about it? Absolutely, I, I did. Um, I didn't realize it when I set out to do it, but. I sure feel like it now, and I, it was very cathartic for me, and it was very helpful in me uh, creating a kind of grief work to get over Neil's passing, because uh, when you are suffering from grief, you're not just grieving for the person you just lost. You're grieving for everyone you've ever lost. It's connected in some mm. profound uh, uh, subconscious way. Yeah. So uh, to understand myself better, if I'm going to go through the process, the rigor of writing a memoir, I want to get something out of it. Uh, and so I examined my father's death and I realized that, you know, I had a voice that wasn't being heard through that time, that uh, my mother's grief was so powerful, was so overwhelming that it soaked up all the oxygen in the house. And us kids, my sister and myself, and my younger brother who was, you know, just five, mm. We were, you know, collateral damage, you know. Nobody asked us how we were handling it, not once, you know. So that was important for me to know because it left uh, unresolved feelings. And uh, life is always better if you resolve feelings. So uh, so that was helpful for me. Yeah, they, they were, I mean, God, Getty, they were saying, your uncles were saying things to you like, you know, you got to cut your hair, you got you to gotta get it together, like on your father's grave. Yeah. It really caught me off guard. You're killing your mother. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Nice of you to point that out. <laughs> I can understand it. There's a lot to process there, you yeah. know? There's a lot to process, yeah. Let me let me go back to the thing. There's something you said that caught me off guard. You were like, you know, you were describing your parents' experience in the Holocaust and you were saying, um, you know, it's, you, you need to understand my mother's story in the Holocaust to understand who I am. And one of the reasons you gave is that, you know, my decision to become a musician comes from their lived experience. But I would think it would go the other way. Like when you, you without being in Rush, quit high school. Like you're not, you're not quitting high school because your band is so successful you have to go on the road and become Getty Lee of, of Rush. It's like this. If my father had not passed away. Yeah. Uh, 
I would have had a stricter authoritarian figure in the house. Right. And he may have put a stop to me wanting to do all that. Yeah. And and so it's kind of multifaceted in, in the sense that uh, there was suddenly a lack of authoritarian figure in my house. And there was also something to run away from. Uh, the stories and my dad's passing left my house a house of grief. It was not a happy house. Um, and as I explain in the book, the whole duties of a young, you know, Jewish boy after they lose a parent is to, you know, go to the synagogue, you know, in the, in the morning before school and in the evening for three services a day, you have to go and say what they call the mourner's kaddish. Mm-hmm. And I did that for 11 months and one day, which was, is the tradition. And in that whole time, I really didn't, uh, I wasn't encouraged to listen to music. I was taken out of music classes at school because that's part of the grief process. And so there's a blank year for me, uh, a year where I was not hip to the latest tracks and, and I felt like I was left behind. So here I am now sitting there with, without a dad, so no uh, male figure to you know, slap me into, into uh, common sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and No one to say get it together. And a very sad household. Yeah. And seeing the world pass me by, you know, I felt like the world was passing me by. So I, I wanted it. I wanted to get into that world. So I started connecting with friends and, and I started learning and buying records and, and listening to every record I could afford to buy, you know, sc- scraping, you know, pennies together and buying music. And mm-hmm. I got obsessed with music. And, and that's when I went and uh, begged my mother to loan me $10 so I could buy the acoustic guitar from the guy next door and started figuring out how to play For Your Love by the Yardbirds. And so all those things kind of drove me out of the house, and that's what I was kind of getting. Right, right, right. I understand that now. And then that leads you to starting to play gigs with the band. And I will say, I've, I've said that a lot of, ever since I interviewed you last time, a lot of people have asked me what you're like. A lot of people will say, you met Giddy Lee, man. You know, what, what's he like? <laughs> it's always that guy. He's but, a dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were there. Uh, no, I, I usually say, I've never met anyone who loves a gig more than Getty Lee. Like that guy <laughs> loves gigs more than anything. And I love, loves telling stories about gigs and, and playing gigs. And I can tell from this book in those early days with, with Alex Lifeson, who ended up being in Rush and, and John Rutsey, who was the drummer for Rush at the time. Yeah. Those early days gigging were really happy for you. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, they're always happy when you're looking back, right? Yeah. Uh, the most fun I had writing this book was the war stories. I don't mean the, the actual war. No, of course. Yeah. But the, yeah. the tour story, shall yeah. we say, or the Northern Ontario bar circuit stories. Yeah. Those are so much fun to remember, and it be- became like a detective game with myself, like where I was looking for clues to spark my memory. And I'm, as you know, I'm a hoarder of sorts. Yeah, I know that. We justify it by saying we're collectors, but yeah. really we're hoarders. And I kept all kinds of stuff. I kept photos. I kept, you know, some of them are in the book. You can see like photos of us after a bar gig and we're getting wasted. Uh, Alex, John and myself and, and a couple of guys from the crew and, and we're getting stupid. Before you got kicked out of the band, by the way. That's right. 
<laughs> I didn't know that until I read the book. Yeah. I didn't know that Hadrian, is that the name of the band? Yeah, they became Hadrian without me. They kicked you out. They kicked me out. And it worked out well for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they lasted two gigs. <laughs> And yeah. and then um, and then I should say the rush of the time is not the rush if that you might be immediately familiar with. Just take a listen to this. That's Working Man from Rush's first album. Hold on, in, in the looking back on the Rush albums process you did, how did that one do okay? Did that one do all right? Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I like that song. It's I a good have, blues yeah. rock song. It's not yeah. the Rush that I'm used to. And it's the one song that we played uh, consistently for the entirety of our career in concert. Yeah. I don't think there was a single... T- I could be wrong. I, there was a fan who's going to call your show and say, hey, Goody was wrong about that, man. <laughs> I saw them in uh, 2001. They didn't play. But I think we played... I, think- I met that guy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I live with that guy. Um, yeah, no, uh, it's... it's in, in a sense, it's a quintessential early Rush song, so I'm, I'm glad you chose that one. Yeah, I love that song. So, And it leads me to the big changes that come after that record comes out. Neil Peart joins the band... I love the story. Can you tell it? I love the story of like, I love the story of just something clicking. And Neil comes in, you guys are doing an audition for the new drummer of Rush. John's left the band. You, you write like, we've never had to do an audition before. We've never had to hold auditions before. And this dude just walks in. Can you tell the story? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, it was July 28th, 1974. And uh, we had an album deal. And we had a tour that was starting in two weeks, but we didn't have a drummer. Oh, uh, good. So <laughs> it was like, oops, uh, something missing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we had to have these auditions and it was, you know, absolutely a humiliating experience for both the person holding the audition and the poor people that are coming to the audition. So I think we had like four guys scheduled. Uh, I don't, sadly, I don't even remember the first guy. But the second guy was someone that had played with us when John had gotten sick and done a couple gigs. So he was a natural person to to try out. And then the third was this lanky dude that showed up in a Ford Pinto. And he pulled up to the loading dock of this place in Pickering where we were rehearsing. And he had short hair and he wasn't wearing a shirt. and It was a hot day and his drums were in garbage bags. And, I love that detail, by the yeah. way, that the drums were in garbage bags. <laughs> <laughs> and so he comes in and introduces himself, and he's very animated, and, you know, he's tall. Yeah. Uh, and he sets up his drums, and he's got these two 18-inch, uh, I think they were Ro- it was a Rogers kit, two 18-inch bass drums, which I've never seen bass drums that small. And once he gets the kit tuned up, he sits on the throne, and he starts playing triplets. And, oh, my effing Lord. It was like machine guns. <laughs> You know, I had this shit-eating grin on my face, and I was, like, looking at Al, and Al was getting a bit miffed at me because I was getting too excited too quickly, and I had promised him that I wouldn't make any decisions until we both talked about everybody afterwards. A poker face. You were supposed to have a poker face. I was face. supposed to have a poker face, but how can you have a poker face when Neil Peart is playing drums for you? Yeah. So we jammed through a few songs, and I, I just knew... There was no way I was letting this guy 
out of my sight. There's just no way. Afterwards, we sat on the floor. We talked about, uh, you know, things we liked. We liked the same books, you know, Tolkien, and we liked the same records. And Alex was the whole time pouting. <laughs> he didn't, you know, he was very non. He w- and it's not like Al, because yeah. you know, Al is the funniest person on the planet Earth. Yeah. He wasn't saying much, but he was just mad at me. And uh, so we said goodbye to him and then, you know, eventually he left and someone else came in. And this poor guy, he had written charts out for our first album and he- This is the next guy. The next guy. He set up this nice drum kit and he was playing everything along very politely and Al looked over at me and he said, okay, yeah, I I understand why you got excited (laughs) about the last guy. And yeah, and that was it. I knew uh, this guy had to be in the band. And he he ends up bringing so much more to the band than just you know drums. Like just oh, yeah. you know, I mean, just take take a listen to this. Getty, what 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 is the name of the song? Bichor and the Snow Dog. <laughs> <laughs> But a very significant song in the Rush story, right? Yeah, of course, uh, uh, because it was sort of our first venture into the uh, world of sci-fi. And, I mean, the song is a joke. It's an, all it was an inside joke. Yeah, they're, they're two real dogs, right? Yeah, they were our manager's dogs that our road manager, Howard Hearns Ungerleiter, had, had uh, invented these na- nicknames for. One was Bitor and the other was the Snow Dog. But Neil took that and he wrote this phantasmagorical story yeah. about this interstellar uh, battle for good and evil. You know, Bitor being the bass, you know, the growly, dark bass, and the snow dog being Alex's, you know, virginal, <laughs> uh, pure heart. Uh, so it set us into a completely different mode of writing. You know, all of a sudden we were trying to be cinematic. We were trying to do a soundscape that you could see, not just hear. And we, you know, Terry Brown, who was our producer for that record, really encouraged that kind of thinking and really looked at the stereo spectrum as colors and, and, a, and palette, a, a palette and described music in a visual way, which is something that had never dawned on us, you know. So it was a really important song, and he was a real mentor to that way of thinking for us. But, but, and you write about this in the book, weren't people going, hey, the the way to make money and be a successful band is to play blues rock. It's to it's to play class, what we could now call classic rock. Mm-hmm. It's not to play in 7-8. It's not to write songs about mythical creatures. I mean, obviously you you did it, but I, I was blown away by the, in the book, by how young you were and how inexperienced you were and how unsuccessful you were to be able to still go to labels and go to these people and go, no, no, we're going to do our thing. Well, uh, you know, we had a deal based on our first record. Right. And I don't think they were pleased with our second record. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know... they they signed a blues band. Yeah, they thought we were going to be the second coming of Bad Company or BTO or something like that, you know. uh, And here is a song about space dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And then a very quiet song based on a a Tolkien-esque place called Rivendell. Lying 
I can see it now. I can see them coming in and going. We got good news. The records. We got the record. Bad news. There's a song about space dogs. <laughs> Who doesn't love a song about space dogs? Come on. So uh, yeah, it was uh, more and less than they bargained for. I think and. Uh, the next couple of records, and, and Caressive Steel, of course, was even weirder. Yeah. And so we were very, uh, um, we were getting a lot of pressure to straighten up and fly right, you know. To, but you were uncompromising, Giddy. We just couldn't help it, you know. Uh, we were smoking good dope, and uh, <laughs> we had ideas that we couldn't keep a lid on. And uh, even though we knew we might be working our way down the ladder of success... We had to do it anyway. That's the first part of my conversation with Getty Lee from the band Rush. Coming up, Getty will tell you what it's like to have 60,000 people sing your song back to you. And he'll open up about some of the final memories he has of Rush's drummer, Neil Peart. After this on cue. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had two of the best partners anyone could ever want in life to work with and be friends with. And we made some great songs together. We made some profoundly bad music. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) we did some pretty good shows. So that's good for me. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Cube. You're in the middle of my conversation with the bassist and lead singer of the legendary Canadian band Rush, Getty Lee. That's a little bit of the song Passage to Bangkok uh, from 2112, the Rush album. Uh, Getty will tell you that album was a real turning point for the band, the moment where they went from being, you know, a perpetual opening act to finally being able to relax a little, knowing that big and big and bigger things were about to happen for them. I'm talking to Getty today because he's released a new memoir that's been talked about for years. It's called, and I love this, it's called My Effin' Life. So for this next part of the conversation, here's what you need to know. The drummer and often lyricist, and in some ways like heart and soul of the band, uh, was Neil Peart from Hamilton, Ontario. And a few years ago, Neil died from brain cancer. He was just 67. This was after Rush had stopped touring for a while. And so um, Getty hasn't really talked publicly that much about this very difficult time. And it's understandably, like he's an iconic drummer to us, but for Getty, Neil was just his buddy. I was very grateful that Getty Lee opened up and decided to share some of his memories of Neil with you today. But I started off by playing Getty one of the band's live recordings to see if he could name the city it was recorded in, a game Getty came up with a name for. Here's more of my conversation with Getty Lee. 
I told you before we got the interview going, I said, I'm going to play you a clip from. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to play you a clip from a concert, and you got to tell me which concert it is. Yeah, this is called Test the Old Man. To test the Old Man. This is our new, <laughs> it's our new series. New on, segment on, on uh, <laughs> Q. Test the Old Musician. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yep. The old man knows? The old man knows. Scotland. No. No? Rio. Ah, oh, okay. Rio. Much later. <laughs> you know what? I should remember that the first time that ever happened was at the Apollo in Scotland. Well, the first time everyone sang along like that? Yeah. And it just, it gave me shivers just now. It gave me shivers then. But that was the, that's why I went to Scotland, because... Uh, we played that song, and all the Scottish fans lit their uh, their lighters or their joints, whatever they had, mm-hmm. and sang <laughs> along full on, full on at the Apollo in, in Glasgow. I hear that's a meaningful moment for musicians. I hear like that that moment you hear your song sung back at you. Oh, it's, it's nothing like it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, it just gives you chills. And what was even more interesting about um, Brazilian fans was the fact that. Uh, when we played YYZ, they wrote their own parts. I mean, they were singing the soccer chant. Oh, what? Yeah, but they were singing with that. But they had this other part. And we didn't recognize it. And it was like, well, they're making up their own parts now? And it was, we were playing in a really large stadium. There was like 50,000 people there. And it was washing throughout the, the stadium, this alternate melody. And somebody told me later that's kind of what they chant at soccer games. But it was a brilliant moment, really a brilliant moment. I feel like it was an important moment that show in Rio for the band, right? For, for you and Alex and Neil. It was from really a lot of perspectives because uh, not only... Uh, and Neil actually said it, and I write this in, in the book, but um, when we were hustled into a van to get out of the stadium after the show in, in Rio, um, I mean, it was an amazing feeling because um, there were so many people. It was such uh, a respected stadium, the, the soccer stadium in Rio. is like a godly place for that culture. And... This was the f- really part of the first tour back for Neil after a really terrible few years and some profound losses. Yeah, in his family, in his life. Yeah. Uh, so he had come so far, and you know we had done things we said we were never too interested in doing. You know, we were you know playing shows in other countries that we said we wouldn't go to. We, we were just doing everything differently, and we were in the van, and he said, "You know what." I think we're an international band. Mm. <laughs> and we all kind of cheered to that. And that was the moment I realized that he was fully back in the fold, that he had come home to, to Al and I. I love the way you write about Neil. I'm s- sensitive to talk to you about it, Getty, because I know I can tell, um, and even you've said it to me a couple of times, that you've had to do a lot of work on Neil's passing. Mm-hmm. I love the way you, 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 you write about him in the book and love, love the way you write about that time. When Neil gets diagnosed with brain cancer, how does that change yours and his relationship? 
Well, what does that do to your relationship? Well, it came at a time that I was still um, getting over the end of the band. You know, Neil had retired. Uh, he hadn't retired from Rush. He had retired from music. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't ready for that to happen. So I had some resentment. I had some feelings that were unresolved. Uh, Alex did as well. Uh, and uh, we had just started to communicate again, you know, because uh, even though the band was over, we had unfinished business. We had this video to edit, this film concert footage from our last, you know, tour. And I remember watching it and uh, listening to the drum solo as I had every night for over 40 odd years. And I was just amazed and... So even though we had a bit of a stiff relationship at that moment because, you know, he had left to be with his new family, as he should have been, yeah. you know, as he had earned the right. Yeah. And so I wrote him a note and I said, man, you know, I just listened to the drum solo. It's just so effing off awesome. And he, he just opened up to me. He just wrote this, you know, effusive note. I mean, he's not a man to write short notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so he wrote me this long email and he talked about how frustrated he was that no one was making any comments about his drum solo all through the tour. Uh, we hadn't said in rehearsal that we liked, he'd worked so hard to build this drum solo and we didn't say anything. He still needed that a little bit from you I guys. guess he did, yeah. but who knew? Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So... And I remember on many occasions uh, complimenting him. And besides, I sat there every single night listening to his drum solo. I mean, I wasn't in the dressing room checking box scores. I no. assure you, I was <laughs> listening to his drum solo. Yeah, so that kind of started to break the ice. And, I, and he wrote about how happy he was and how he was a librarian at his daughter's school and and I said to myself, what kind of an idiot would begrudge this man that feeling, that obligation, fulfilling that obligation of being a father to his daughter, being, enjoying his, his uh, new family? So it was a kind of a, an awakening for me, and I felt like I had just been too selfish and not enough of a friend. And it was right at that time that I had gone to England with my wife and of course, uh, we were sitting in a restaurant and we got an, uh, anyway, we got an email from Neil saying that, you know, he was ill Yeah. and, uh, it was, it was devastating. It was just, you know, really hard to swallow, but that's the way it was. And so, uh, in a second, any feelings of regret or judgment about his retirement, it just melted away. In a, by the time I'd finished the end of the email, yeah. which was very short, just stated what was happening to him. Uh, all those feelings had changed. You know, I realized, okay, there's a bigger problem now. Yeah, and I love this guy, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, and he's, you know? Yeah. 
that really highlights it. Yeah. I love that he like he he goes back in those moments. What a, what a gift to be able to do that. He goes back and he listens to the records. Like he yeah. isn't that. What do you make of that? It shocked me really, and Alex too, because I remember one visit we had to L.A. when he was ill, and uh, he was sitting there telling us. You know, we would go to his Bubba Cave for for lunch, and uh, you know, get his favorite takeout food, <laughs> and spend an hour or two making him laugh as best we could. Uh, and so he was telling us he was on the ways back and forth to the to the cave every day. You know, he went every day to the Bubba Cave. That was his fortress of solitude. And he said his friend Juan, who was driving him, uh, would play him a different Rush album on the way in every day. And he was analyzing them all. And he couldn't wait to talk to us about them. And his feelings and his thoughts and his pride. And, and it was shocking because it was out of character that he would look back like that. But when you think about it, he knew he was at the end of his life and he wanted to review the work he had done. That's powerful stuff, man. Yeah. And to share with us his pride. Yeah. That's the point I'm trying to get at is that he wanted to share his pride with us. Let us know that he was proud. That he was proud of the work that you guys had done together. Mm -hmm. That's something, that's a gift, Getty. I mean, not everyone gets to have that with their friend, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. How was the, um, I know, I know this isn't easy to talk about and I'm, I'm grateful for you to talk about it and you can let it's me know. Okay. Yeah, let me know too. How was, I'm back. Yeah. How was the experience of, of writing about his death in the book? Because it was something that I hadn't heard you talk about a lot. No, I didn't want to really, you know, he wanted to keep it quiet. Yeah. So we kept it quiet. That was his wish. And that was difficult because you know things leak out people would hear something and then they would call you and they would ask you about how's neil is he okay and you would just lie you know you would just change the subject or make a joke or oh yeah he's fine yeah no problem so uh that was a burden and uh after he passed and they released uh you know um, a press release about it, it was hard to break out of the silent mode that we had been in for three and a half years. And I didn't feel right to talk about it. I, I felt like I would be betraying him in some way if I spoke about these intimate moments. And, and when I wrote the book, I was very careful to choose moments that I think he would approve of me sharing and that showed him in the light he deserved to be shown. I, I know what you mean when you say that um, every every loss, I mean, you lose your dad when you're 12, um, and your mom has gone through such incredible loss. Losing, I know that from my own experience, that losing Neil, you start to process, I know what you mean now when you say that. You, yeah. you start to process all of those losses together at once. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been a lot. <laughs> How are you doing with it? You doing all right now? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah. Good, you know, the writing was very helpful to me, and uh, it. But it's enough now, you know. I, it's enough of the past. Mm. <laughs> uh, you can get lost in your own past. That's not good for your brain. It's not good for your 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 sense of yourself. You know, you can spend too long telling war stories, telling tour stories, mm -hmm. uh, you know, elevating your opinion to such a height that everything you do seems 
important. Mm. That's a dangerous thing for anybody's personality. I don't advise you lingering on that. Yeah. But uh, so I'm ready to uh, look ahead and do do things, uh, interesting things. Yeah. I hope when you listen back to those records um, in, in the process of writing this book, man, I hope you were, I hope the general, even though you were nitpicking and what was that bass tone and what's the, what the hell is that song about and why did we write a song about two snow dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I hope the, I hope the um, overarching feeling was pride of what you and your band did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't have regrets in that regard. I was the luckiest, as Luke Eric said, I was the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I had two of the best partners anyone could ever want in life to work with and be friends with. So um, I was blessed in that regard. And uh, I don't regret any of it. And we made some great songs together. We made some profoundly bad music. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did some pretty good shows. So that's good for me. And you wrote a great book here. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going we're gonna to play a song after the... We play a song after every interview. Okay. Do you want to pick it? What Rush song does Getty Lee think we should play in the CBC after going through the whole catalog? Headlong Flight. Headlong Flight? Why? Um, because it's kind of about... I don't know. It, in, a, in, a, in its own way, it's a memoir about us and life and... Wanting to live it all again. Katie Lee, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Always happy to be here. All the journeys of this great adventure. Is that it always feel that way? I wouldn't trade them because I let them. The best I've done, and that's enough to say. Perhaps that sound like Queens of the Stone Age to me. You know what I mean? That is a Rush and Headlong Flight from their album Clockwork Angels. Before that, you heard my conversation with Getty Lee from the band Rush. His new memoir is called My Effin' Life. It's out everywhere now at your uh, local bookstores. And the audiobook is available now with Getty Lee reading the book to you. Maybe singing the book to you. And that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, the British director Edgar Wright put Toronto on the global stage in his movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which went from box office failure to cult classic. Now, more than a decade later, Edgar is revisiting the film and the city in a new series for Netflix. So Edgar Wright will be here to look back. If you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do that, Q at cbc.ca or uh, over Instagram. I'm at Tom Joe Power there. Though we just got some handwritten mail. We were just opening up in the office. What a treat. What a joy. So you can you can send I don't know how to send it in, but you can you can send that in as well. I'm sure it's on the on the internet. If this was another time, I'd probably know the address off by heart. Anyway, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.